This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. WeWork says we'll wait. WeWork pushing back its much-awaited IPO. The company is seeking more time to lay investor doubts over its governance slash valuation business prospects. It's quite a list of things to do. Julian Tan is senior reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York, joining Jason Mee in New York. Out in San Francisco, our 960 studio, Ellen Hewitt, startups reporter at uh, Bloomberg News. Um, I want to start with you, Ellen, first. So it's not happening. God, who would have thought at the beginning <laughs> of the year that this is how it was going to play out? Well, there's certainly been a big change um, almost every week or every day in the last week about about whether it's going to happen or not. It's been sort of this roller coaster of of trying to get incremental news out about whether um, whether the IPO was going to go forward. And yeah, the the current status is. Uh, maybe in the future, uh, in the near future. And as WeWork said in a statement late last night, um, they have pledged to definitely do it uh, within the calendar year, which is important, as we probably talked about earlier, um, because they have some uh, credit facilities that are contingent on getting um, an IPO done at a certain amount in 2019. Well, and Ellen, I'm glad you brought that up because Jillian Tan, I turn the question to you. This is not a decision of like, oh, okay, like we'll get to it when we get to it. There are no real implications. There are real implications here around financials, around that credit facility. This is rippling through in in manifest ways. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah. So just to circle back to that credit facility, the, the IPO can actually be done at any valuation. It just needs to be done in the calendar year of 2019 for them to get access to this $6 billion. So hypothetically, they could raise $3 billion at a $3 billion valuation and still get this $6 billion. The crunch is really they're burning through cash. So at you know eventually, if they don't get access to this debt, if they don't get access to new equity, whether it's through private markets, maybe SoftBank steps up and gives them a little injection. If they don't go public this year, there just needs to be some sort of backup plan if there is no IPO. Well, I do think about, too, the longer this drags on, you know, maybe there's a new round of financials that have to be brought to light, Jillian, uh, to the public, which might <laughs> possibly impact that valuation even further. Yeah, so we've flicked good, that in our... In a good or bad way. Yeah, we've flicked that in our story. Um, some other publications have also flicked it and suggested that this particular quarter, the quarter ended September 30, could be quite positive for the company and could reflect well on its growth. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe investors see that when they come out again, follow an updated S1 prospectus. Yeah. So, Ellen, uh, come on back in here because one of the issues that I feel like we need to keep hitting on, and this came up in a conversation we had with James Gorman last week uh, of Morgan Stanley, is this disconnect, to say the least, between the private markets and the public markets. You know, Gorman's rationale is essentially this is what markets do. You know, the public market is essentially saying you're not worth what all those big venture capital firms said you were, (laughs) you know, over the last few years. That feels like a little bit of a reckoning. Is that too much to uh, put on this? I don't think that's too much to put on this. And what's interesting is with most other private venture-backed companies, uh, you would think that the message being sent by the public markets is 
yeah, we don't agree with what all those other venture firms and other investors have said. In WeWork's case, it's a little different because since 2017, the only private investor that they've had has been SoftBank. Right. So you have this very interesting dynamic where since, you know, in the last two years in which the valuation of the company has more than doubled, the it's gone from $20 billion to $47 billion, right? That was the most recent private valuation with SoftBank. That's there's only two people who really need to agree on that valuation. That's Adam Newman and Masayoshi Son. So it sounds like it's a little bit more of a reckoning toward that dynamic, maybe, than, than the venture capital world at large. And actually, I think, as we've started to see people suggest, if the WeWork IPO really doesn't go off well, I think you're going to see people in Silicon Valley and in the venture capital world trying to distance themselves from it, saying, mm-hmm. like, well, it's not really a tech company. They've, they've been more real estate, or there was this weird fundraising dynamic that was around their valuation. I have to say, after we spent the day at the Columbia Business School, I talked to James Gorman and Morgan Stanley because Morgan Stanley was not involved <laughs> in uh, potentially bringing that uh, company we worked to, to public. As reported by our colleagues sitting right here. <laughs> What's interesting is somebody tweeted at us saying, hey, thanks, Morgan Stanley, for not getting us involved in that. So it is interesting, you know, kind of. Uh, the Monday morning uh, quarterbacking that we're seeing. So, Jillian, what do you think? What's next? What are you expecting? What are you hearing from folks who are watching this uh, play out? Um, Where do they see it going for WeWork? Yeah, so obviously it's not going to go in September. We think the earliest they can go, and we have reported the earliest they can go, is mid-October. Yeah, the the auditors will need to have a quick look at the September 30 numbers, get that refiled out to the market, get investors comfortable again with those numbers, re-educate them on the corporate governance changes that have been made. Maybe we'll see more if investors push for more, but yeah, we're waiting on that. Ellen, is there going to be interest in this issue considering all of what we talked about over the last couple of weeks? I mean, there's, there's, I think people will be watching this very closely, in particular to try to draw out larger questions of, for example, these governance changes that you talked about. We have seen over the last 10-ish years more tolerance, especially in Silicon Valley, for really ironclad grip and control from founders in the form of super voting shares, in the form, uh, you know, and we saw this with, you know, going back to Facebook, but also with Zynga, also with Snap. Like, we've started to get more used to that idea that the founder holds some particular vision and, and, and particular acumen for leading a company, and they should be rewarded with governance that allows them extra control. You're starting to see that a little questioned with Adam Newman and, and WeWork. And it's interesting because he is one of these big visionary right. founders. Um, and so I'm unsure how that's going to shake out. I think people will be looking at this as a, a data point in that narrative about, like, maybe people are starting to sour on that dynamic. They want more Got checks it. and balances. All right. We're going to leave it there. Ellen Hewitt, startups reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our 960 studio in San Francisco and right here in New York. Jillian Tan, senior reporter for Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Steve Schwartzman, heard of him. He runs Blackstone. He's got a new book out. It's called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. We got a chance to catch up with him for an edition of Business Week Talks. Here he is. China uh, has been the most rapidly growing country probably in world history over a 40-year period. And then they did that with enormous energy, central planning, and also adopting a lot of things that emerging markets countries do, which is hiding behind high tariff walls, mm-hmm. uh, closing its markets, and if not closed, n- not making them as accessible as, as, the, as the developed world does, uh, and doing different things with intellectual property 
And, you know, the U.S. Uh, in the um, uh, 19th century sort of did the same thing. We were a poor little country, uh, and we found a way to use tariffs to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, that creates imbalances uh, around the world. So, so now that, you know, China's got $3 trillion of reserves, uh, it's, it's the biggest producer and fulfiller of jobs in the world. So jobs have moved from the developed world to China. Wealth has moved. And the f- global financial crisis uh, basically uh, created uh, problems uh, for the developed world. So now we have roughly half of the people, for example, in the United States, who, who, who have income in- insufficiency. Uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're in a bad way. Uh, and, and that creates populism. And, and when domestic candidates for being attacked don't result in change for the people who are in trouble, they, they find a foreign devil. Uh, and I was pretty sure it was going to be China for those reasons. So, so, so in effect, China recognizes that, that the circumstances of the world have changed uh, – but but like all people who have a really good deal, yeah. <laughs> uh, why would you change it? Yeah. Uh, and you only change it because there's there's pressure and the change ends up being in their interest. On the other hand, um, there are people in their country who don't believe that. They just want things the way they are. Mm-hmm. Remember, people don't like to change. And, and so here we have the developed world represented by the United States who wants them to change. So so. It's a very interesting thing where, where China knows it has to change. The U.S. wants them to change. It should be easy, uh, except uh, it, it's not easy because people don't like giving up uh, advantage. Uh, and, and on the U.S. side, um, they would want to accomplish this rebalancing as quickly and as thoroughly as they can. So, so what's, what's happening over the last two and a half years, roughly, is these two giant countries, which which together have somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of the world's economy. Mm-hmm. So this is like the two parents fighting uh, and the children, you know, are like hiding mm-hmm. uh, and, and they're upset. That's the rest of the world, which is slowing trade. Uh, but long term, a potential decoupling of these two giant countries uh, actually results in lower growth. For everyone. Right. Do and how much do you worry about that? Yeah. How much do well, you worry about that decoupling? Because that seems to be the biggest worry in the world right now is that mom and dad will come together. A splitting of the world, essentially. Apart. Right. Well, partly that's happening because, because there hasn't been the overlap. Uh, and, and I think that, that because ultimately, um, you know, people are rational on a certain level. <laughs> Uh, that that as as these two countries see that that's not working uh, for them, uh, that that they'll come to a table, which is what's happening now for the I guess the third time, right? Uh, and they're doing it not, not to just be helpful; they're doing it as they as they recognize that the short term in, in China can, can can remain fine with policy adjustments. Mm-hmm. But they're borrowing from their future. And long term, if you really go off on your own and decouple uh, and have a slower growing world, what's the win in that? That's not a win. That's, and, what, and what can you, Steve Schwartzman, do to help this along? Well, 
I, I think there are a lot of people who know both countries, and and I think it's 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 important that 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 people understand where this is ultimately going, which is not in their interest, and and ultimately I I believe that people will act in their self interest and there will be an adjustment. No no one can predict the way sort of the media wants what's going to happen in right. October and right. you know it's sort of in the you know sort of I, I could guess but it's a who knows uh, because it's really about for the primarily it's about China they, they have their hardliners they have mm-hmm. their right. uh, reformers what do they actually want to put on a table and President Xi has to balance that right now well right, so, somebody the- has to balance it yeah and and, and in May uh, when the trade talks basically were I was going to say suspended, but at that point they were ended. Uh, you know, the, the the balance of of reform versus uh, you know sort of the harder line position, the harder line people you know in effect had more influence. Now, as it's all becoming more complicated, not just because of trade, other decisions right. that China mm-hmm. has made over the last two or three years are creating more uh, complexity there. You know, they've got other things going on. Uh, as as well to put pressure on them uh, that 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 they're coming and saying let let's see if we can do something uh, is sensible. Uh, it you can't get caught up in two people right uh, or, or, or any administration right be, because if we don't solve this problem, the, the the attitude of the Democrats towards China is is if not identical uh, to to the current administration, it's pretty close. So. I think China recognizes that, um, you know, this is a structural uh, issue. It's not a one U.S. president. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so getting something to lower the temperature and helping growth globally is in everybody's interest. So in everybody's interest, lowering the temperature, you know, all of those phrases that we heard from Steve Schwartzman, it was a really interesting conversation. We're going to put out the entire thing. It's about 25, 30 minutes. Uh, he goes into greater detail about his role in being the go-between uh, between President Xi and President Trump, a lot about the importance of China. And he talks about early days on Wall Street. It's good. It's good. Yeah. And I think what's fascinating, too, is here's somebody who did have a successful career on Wall Street initially Lehman Brothers and takes us back to that firm specifically. Um, he had some problems with in terms of how it was run. Huge problem. Huge problem. I mean, problems. he and Pete Peterson, ultimately his co-founder at Blackstone, that. have referred to themselves uh, as you know sort of refugees from Lehman, and it in, it informed and this, and this really came out in our conversation with Steve. It informed so many of the choices that he made in terms of how he built. Blackstone. It's not a perfect place, right? Uh, regardless of what you might think reading the book. <laughs> no, but it is interesting. And here's somebody though who came from you know successful time on Wall Street, building his own firm. It was not easy. It didn't just happen overnight. And so he gets into all of that. And there's some really great takeaways. Uh, one of the lessons that we learned was about if you're going to do something, go big. Right? Yep. It's going to demand the same effort as doing something on a smaller level, if you will. I'm so. pretty sure that's on one of the many, <laughs> many post-it notes that are spread across your Bloomberg terminal. It's on my license plate. I think we can get a new one. All right, Steve Schwartzman, do check out uh, our interview with him in Bloomberg Business Week on the weekend and in our extended podcast. This is Bloomberg Radio. Brian Eckhouse is here, energy reporter for Bloomberg. He is part of a blockbuster series that we're doing this week. Today's story, what's behind the world's biggest climate victory? Capitalism. 
Brian, great to have you with us. So take us into this story. It starts in a very provocative way because you essentially have someone saying, future in 2010 is coal. Didn't turn out to be true. Not quite. There was this idea for a long time that renewables were kind of cute. They were cuddly. They were alternative. You heard all the time, alternative energy. It's one of those, oh, nice thing to do. Exactly. And even now, like, the percentage of solar and wind on the grid is relatively modest. It's much higher in places like Texas, where there's strong wind, California with solar, but still sort of spotty. But what's changed in the last few years, and what people had wrong, as you said, in 2010, the price of solar and wind came down so much that in, like, two-thirds of the world right now, it's solar or wind or both are the cheapest sources of electricity. And it's expected to be even more, right, going forward. Exactly. In terms uh, of if you look at the power grid and the amount of power that will be um, provided for by renewable energy, it just continues to go up. Yeah, analysts here at Bloomberg NEF say that by 2050, solar and wind will power half the globe. And so what tipped it? I mean, the, and Is it China that in terms of solar panels, for instance? They're one factor. Yeah. I mean, the big thing is that like the cost of solar panels, the cost of wind turbines came down a lot. Part of it was, yes, there were subsidies uh, from China and from the U.S., and there's still subsidies in a lot of parts of the world. But we're now seeing in places like Spain, Italy, even China, definitely India, where these plants are no longer subsidized. And when governments or utilities or corporations look for new power sources, they look for wind and solar. What could trip this up? Because you do have, this is ultimately turned into something of a political issue. Maybe not ultimately, it always has been a political issue. Uh, the whole idea of coal jobs and, and coal-powered jobs, for lack of a better term, was a key part of the constituency in 2016 for President Trump. Do politics enter into this at this point? It might. Uh, the administration has tried to find ways to prop up struggling coal nuclear plants. And some states, including some blue states, have done things to subsidize uh, nuclear around the country. Right. You think about the impact, right, on our utility infrastructure to some extent where, you know, coal has been such a big part of it. You know, these are changing dynamics for this industry and these companies. Absolutely. And like in parts of like the Midwest, Pennsylvania, Ohio, they're sitting on some of the strongest shell gas reserves in the country. Right. So a lot of the coal plants that are coming off the grid now are being replaced by gas. The question really is, we're going to, are we going to see renewables replace the gas soon or in right. 30, 40, 50 years? That's a big question in the U.S. Great well, story. Yeah, definitely check it out because there are some really cool graphics. Uh, it's on the Bloomberg Terminal, also on Bloomberg.com. This is part of Covering Climate Now. It's an initiative, a global collaboration, more than 220 news outlets highlighting climate change. And I just want to mention Michael R. Bloomberg, the founder and majority stakeholder of Bloomberg LP, has committed $500 million to launch Beyond Carbon. That's a campaign aimed at closing the remaining coal-powered plants in the U.S. by 2030 and slowing the construction of new gas plants. So I do want to put that out there. Um, interesting, though, the renewable energy world, it definitely is changing, I think, um, you know, becoming a bigger, bigger factor. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
So just got about 20 minutes, no, 12 minutes left in today's trading session. Forgive me. Uh, And I'm just watching because I was watching um, the equity averages. They are ticking higher here in that last hour of trading. Uh, Let's get some thoughts. Let's get the drive to the close. David Spica is... uh, President of Guidestone Capital Management, $14.9 billion in assets under management, on the phone from Dallas. David, hey, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Uh, boy, what a week. We were saying, you know, between the oil shock, uh, concerns about the overnight uh, market, a uh, lot of big macro stories. And then, of course, tomorrow we hear from the Fed. How do you sum it up? What are you telling your clients? Well, I think the Fed is the key for this week anyway. Uh, we fully expect him to cut rates by a quarter of a point. The comments in the statement and in the press conference will be heavily parsed, and I think the market's looking for an indication that the Fed's willing to continue cutting rates aggressively. However, the bigger thing is the economy, and where China comes into that and the Chinese trade issue is really the key thing that we're focusing right now, because as that goes, so goes the economy, and that's really the key for driving stocks higher at this point. So how do you figure in, just staying with some of the shocks this week, how do you figure in the sort of the Middle East, the Saudi Arabia, the the oil situation. If you are at the Federal Reserve, you know, you're sort of dutifully putting together your notes uh, for this week's meetings, and all of a sudden that happens, how much does it change your perspective on what's going on in the world? And then, candidly, then you factor in Israeli elections and some of the other uh, geopolitical concerns uh, that we're seeing. How much does that jump to the sort of the top of the queue? I really don't think it does. So remember, the Fed's primary focus is full employment and price stability. We clearly have full employment today, and we just had the highest core CPI print in 11 years. So from that perspective, it's a little difficult to justify even a quarter-point rate cut, much more uh, anything above that. Um, and things that happen, such as the, the, the spike in oil prices yesterday that is largely reversed today, those are things the Fed are, is not going to pay a whole lot of attention to at this point. They're looking more uh, toward factors that will drive economic growth over the next 3, 6, 12 months. And so something that happened over the weekend that – at this point, doesn't appear to be that big an issue. Is not something they're going to focus that heavily on. Now, if it turns into a broader conflict in the Middle East, then it'll come into play in right. terms of their decision-making process. So tell us a little bit about uh, the fund that you manage, Guidestone Defensive Market Strategies Fund. I'm looking at the one-year performance. Looks like it's up about 6%, putting it in the 72nd percentile, according to Bloomberg data. Tell us a little bit about uh, the holdings and any kind of recent um, ads or subtractions that you've made from the fund. Sure. Now, this fund is designed to perform the best when the volatility spikes. And we haven't seen a whole lot of volatility. Volatility has increased somewhat. But this fund is designed for investors that are concerned about rising volatility. It's designed to capture no more than 50% of the downside. And historically, over the nine-year track record, that's exactly what it's done, only 50% of drawdowns, while capturing 65 to 70% of the upside. That's why it's underperforming in an up market. But we fully believe that we're heading into a much more volatile environment. We've got weakening earnings growth, weakening economic growth, the trade issue, potential Middle East problems. All this is going to create more volatility. And this is a fund designed to perform better in that environment. So where are you going to see that volatility? Where is it going to manifest? Because I'm not seeing it on the VIX. 
Well, the VIX actually has gone up a bit. You're correct. I mean, the long-term average for the VIX is about 20, and we've averaged 17 over the last year. I think the issue today, though, is that I don't know that investors are fully reflecting the real risks in the environment. The other factor is liquidity. There's a tremendous amount of liquidity, courtesy of central banks around the world. And as long as that liquidity is out there, it needs to find a home. However, if we continue to go in a path that shows weakening economic growth, weakening earnings growth, and we're about to hit the third straight quarter of negative year-over-year earnings growth, at some point, investors are going to recognize, you know, the Fed can't save us from this. We need to be more defensive. They're going to look to own less risky asset classes, and that's where that volatility will spike. The only thing I'm going to say that there are no signs that global central banks, David, are going to <laughs> at any time back off from making kind of the easy money continue to be out there. And I'm just going to say, you know, I, I'm curious about your expectations of greater volatility because take a look at since the financial crisis, we've had a lot of crises, whether it's concerns about European banks, whether it was Greece, you know, pick your item. And I feel like we have weathered those storms and maybe there's a slight jump in VIX, but then it bounces back down. So I I just wonder, you know, why you think that that could change. I mean, are you talking about VIX levels of 40 in the near future or what? No, let, let's kind of go back then, because your point is a good point. If you think about what's happened since the, the bottom of the market in 2009, we've had a rapid increase in earnings growth that entire period of time. Part of that was fueled by easy central bank policy, but it was also fueled by rising demand coming out of the bottom and, and companies that, that really had an opportunity to gain market share. That's not the case today. Demand is weakening. Corporations are not spending because they're very concerned about trade policy. The consumer's still hanging in there, but once we start to see employment levels weaken, consumer spending is going to fall, too. And the U.S. economy is 70% consumer spending. So as that occurs, earnings are going to continue to fall, and we're not going to have that earnings backdrop. Remember, Fed policy, monetary policy, does not, over time, drive stock prices. This has just been an unusual period we've been in. Over time, stock prices are driven by earnings growth. And when earnings growth falters, which it's in the process of doing, that's when you're going to see stock prices falter, and you're going to need a more defensive approach to your portfolio. And where will we see or where are we seeing that consumer weakness uh, right now, David? Well, we're not seeing it yet. Again, we're not, we're not seeing it yet. You're right. Um, our concern is that as earnings continue to weaken, you're going to see lesser and lesser levels of corporate spending. Corporate spending is heavily correlated with earnings growth. Earnings growth is declining. In fact, it's gone negative. So we've seen capital expenditures decline. Right. The next step would be lower uh, employment gains. So they'd be paying lesser in wages. They'd be hiring less and eventually start laying off uh, workers. That happens when you're moving into a weaker economic cycle. That's when consumer spending would really be hurt the most. And that's something we see on the horizon. All right. We'll keep our eye out for that. David Spica is president of Guidestone Capital Management, looking after about $14.9 billion down in the big D. He joined us on the phone from Dallas. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.